Good day, everyone. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us with clarity through your Word. And we ask, dear Lord, today you would soften hardened hearts and you would fill us with joy and anticipation and expectation as we receive from you. Lord, work by your Spirit as we've heard in the Catechism today and ignite our hearts uh, with the truth that is found in your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, it's good to be back after a few weeks of study leave. I'm sure you've enjoyed uh, having Pastor Pete taking us through chapters 3 and 4 of Romans over the last two Sundays. We're going to look at chapter 5 this week and next week. It's a really big chapter. And these are significant passages, not only for us to further our understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith, they are also important for us because it gives an answer to one of our deepest longings as humans. It gives us an answer to one of our deepest longings as humans. Today, we are going to reflect on the topic of peace. Now, when I say the word peace, you probably have a few images in your mind right now, right? You're probably thinking of calm waters. You're thinking of, you know, tranquil environments. You're thinking of a restful holiday. Don't think for too long, you're going to fall asleep, right? But that's what you're thinking about, right? You're thinking peace. Uh, There is an unshakable steadiness. You know, looking out into the ocean, hearing the gentle waves crash, staring to the mountains, hearing the birds sing, sitting on a boat in the middle of a lake with absolutely no sound at all. Peace. I sound like a yoga instructor, don't I, right? Uh, In the immortal words of the Australian movie, The Castle, it makes us wonder, how's the serenity? So much serenity. Such a high-quality movie, right? We hunger for this sort of peace. And this peace is in stark contrast to the chaos of our everyday lives, right? Uh, We know that frantic busyness, instability, and uncertainty in our day-to-day living is just exhausting. It's not sustainable. We all want peace. And so whether it is accruing enough holidays, to go on a trip up the coast, or taking a trip to Bali, or or finding a house that is far away from work, just to get away from the hecticness and chaos of our world, we want to create an environment where peace is not just temporary, but long-lasting. And I want to say that that totally makes sense. No one really likes to live in a constant state of chaos or anxiety, like psychologically, it's just not good for you. And even those who love constant change often arrive at a point in their lives where they just kind of want to settle for a sense of peace. But you see, the trouble with our common definition of peace is that it is satisfying, but it's never permanent. We know it when we've experienced it, but we know it always comes to an end. and We we never attain it to its fullness. Uh, What's more, and this is probably the most tragic part, The peace that we're after is not realistic. We know that we cannot stare into the ocean for the rest of our lives. We know we can't go fishing every single day. That would kill some of you, right? It's neither permanent nor is it realistic. That's why we continue to be filled with anxiety. We are unsettled. We are rarely, if ever, content. 
Friends, we seek peace through stability, but the stable life is rarely a reality. And friends, I want us to see that this hunger for peace is actually a longing, a longing for something that only God can give. We experience shadows of it by the beach, in the mountains, on the lakes, but the substance, its fullest form, is actually promised and is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's actually what Romans 5 verses 1 to 11 is talking about. This here is not an abstract theological statement. It is a pastoral letter which addresses very real human concerns. Romans 5 is actually telling us that God gives us peace in the storm. God gives us peace in the storm. It is not a peace that removes us from the reality of life. It is a peace that gives us resilience and strength for the realities of life. Come to point one with me. I want you to notice how chapter 5 starts. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pause there really briefly, right? You remember that the whole of Romans chapter 4, Pastor Pete took us through this, was all about justification through faith. Fancy term, but actually a very simple concept. The idea is that all of us have sinned against the Holy God. We've turned our backs against Him. And so we deserve the punishment, the isolation, the hopelessness, and the death that comes as a result of sin. But you see, the whole point of Romans 4, in case you missed it, is that God in His kindness gives us another way. It is the way that was promised in the Old Testament through Abraham. It is the way that is clearly seen in the New Testament through Christ. And the way God gives it, is that all who humbly admit their fault and sin, all who trust in Jesus alone for forgiveness, can be forgiven. We, you and I, can be justified. We can be made right. We can be made just. We receive this through faith, by trusting in God. By saying, God, without you, I am nothing. But if I have you, I have everything. Church, this is one of the key messages of the Bible that sinners can be made right and just before a holy God. But you see, I want to show you that this is not just a good idea. This changes everything. That's why chapter 5 starts with the word, therefore. It's showing you the implication. Because here in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that justification is the means or the way through which we have peace. Oh my... What does that mean? Well, the first thing it means, and I want us to realize, are you ready? Is that the peace you and I long for is not something that can be earned through human effort. The peace that you and I long for is not something that can be earned through human effort. Paul is saying here that the peace we're all after is found because we have been justified by God. The work is done. And I just want you to sit on that truth for just a moment, right? Because this may be a complete paradigm shift for you. That that peace and tranquility and calmness that you look forward to is not something that you can work for. It's something that is given to you. But how? Well, you see, verse 1 continues by saying, we have peace with God through 
our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is the means, the work is done. And here we see that Jesus Christ is the merit. The price is paid. This little detail is so important. If you blink, you'll miss it, okay? Because what we see in this verse is that the root cause for our lack of peace is not because our lives are chaotic. I'll say that again. That's too important, right? Our lack of peace is not because our lives are chaotic. Did you write that down? It is not because things in our life spiral out of control. That's not why we don't have peace. It's not even because we are constantly surrounded by intrusive sights or sounds. That's what a sound. It disrupts your peace, right, to be sure. But that's not why you don't have peace. This verse is telling us that there is an inner chaos that needs to be dealt with. It is that by default, humans do not have peace with God. That's the root cause. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever injured your foot and so you have to walk around with a limp? I've had multiple injuries on my left ankle since I was young. And so even today, I sprain and twist it really easily. I have to be super careful, right? But when I have a limp, I find it extremely difficult to walk on basically any sort of surface at all, right? I'm just like doing these ones, right? You know, I have a limp when I have to climb up the stairs to go to my bedroom. It's tragic, right? But here's a question. Are the stairs the reason for my limp? Yes and no, right? Yes, in that I will probably limp less if I didn't have to climb the stairs. If I just walked on smooth surface, it might be a little bit easier. But obviously, no, because my limp was already there, right? Because you see, I could also limp my way across a smooth surface. Is the smooth surface the reason for my limp? Well, yes and no, right? Uh, Yes, in that I wouldn't limp if I just sat down. Uh, I wouldn't limp if I just sat on a wheelchair, but no, right? Because my limp is there regardless of the surface. Do you see what's going on? The conditions around me haven't caused my limp. My injury caused my limp. My limp caused my limp. The circumstances made it harder, but it's not the cause. And if you treat the problem only, the problem will keep coming up. You need to treat the cause. Do you get the principle? Romans chapter 5 is making a profound point that you and I have a spiritual limp that comes from not having peace with God. As a result, we find that chaos, that lack of peace everywhere we turn. So as we limp across unemployment, relational breakdown, as we limp across anxiety, we need to ask, did any of these things cause my lack of peace? Well, yes and no, right? They may be triggers, they may exasperate our spiritual condition, but you see, the circumstances may be different, but the cause remains the same. You and I, church, regardless of age, regardless of background, need peace with God. Our lack of peace with God is because we've turned our backs against Him. We have sinned. Every transgression has a price, but here is the good news. Romans 5, Jesus Christ has paid that price for us by dying the death we should have died in order that you and I can have life. That life is peace. My brothers and sisters, this means that really concretely, 
Our peace with God begins to frame the chaos of our lives. Our peace with God begins to frame the chaos of our lives. We're going to talk more about that in point two, but let's just hang that in our memories for just a moment, right? Because the biblical and theological point here is critical. We will miss everything if we get this wrong. We will keep coming up with patch and band-aid solutions to our chaos and anxiety unless and until we realize that our longing for peace has to be found first and foremost in being reconciled to God. Do you know why our world is filled with no peace and full of chaos? We have better technology, better medicine, better advancement than ever before. But chaos continues to reign the day. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm saying all those do not deal with the root cause. Romans 5 tells us, do not look any further. The solution is here. Reconciliation is found in Jesus Christ. But why? Well, the means is justification, making us right with God. The merit is Jesus Christ. He pays the price. Why would God do something like that? Our passage actually makes it clear. The motivation is simple. It is love. Verse 8 makes us the clearest, right? Look at verse 8 with me. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I want us to notice something here, okay? God loved us not while we were on our best behavior, not when we had it all together, not when our crowning accomplishments and achievements were on display. He loved us when we're at our worst, while we were still sinners. But you see, I am not sure we understand the depth of what that means. If I, if I just said, you know, Christ died for us while we're still sinners and you switched off, I don't think you get it. You have to listen very closely, right? Because you see, the word sinner does not carry much weight for us today. It's often been diluted of meaning or emptied of meaning. No one really uses that word much anymore anyway, right? But it's almost like Romans 5 knows it, right? It's almost like Romans 5 knows that the word sinner needs to be explained. So he does. Paul uses two images to help us. Look at your Bibles with me. The first image is powerless. That's verse 6, yeah? While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Underline, underline that in your Bibles, right? Because that captures what sin does to us. It renders us powerless and weak in so many ways, right? It firstly captures how sin can cause a person to be lifeless. And that can look like a few things, right? But a very common image of a lifeless sinner is someone who literally has no direction and no purpose in life. Just wandering and existing without meaning. That's often the image we get. But I want you to see that a lifeless sinner can also be a person who is brimming with energy, brimming with productivity, brimming with life. But all of this is designed to distract him or her from the emptiness that is within you know, we can keep ourselves busy in order to avoid facing the harsh realities of life. 
Maybe we do all this to cover up the fact that we don't have direction and meaning. We just put up a facade so that people don't pierce through it. Powerless. But you know the word also captures how sin makes us incapable of being reconciled to God. We're powerless for that. That's what we need the most. On our own, we have no ability to reach out to God. Which is why the good news is that while we were still powerless, Christ did what we cannot do. He does this because of his love. Powerless. Another word used to describe the word sinner is enemy. That's verse 10. For while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. That's really important, right? Because I'm not sure if you realize, but the word enemy reminds us that sin is not a neutral term or a neutral category. I'll say that again. Sin is not a neutral term or a neutral category. Sometimes we think that being a sinner is like being lactose intolerant, right? It's like, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm intolerant to lactose, so I'll just avoid milk, I'll avoid cheese, I'll avoid dairy products, And if I just avoid it, then I'll be fine. But if I accidentally take dairy, then I just got to pay for it later. And by paying for it, I mean in ways that are not appropriate to speak of from the pulpit, right? Lactose intolerance. We sometimes think of sin in that way. I'm a sinner, so I'll just avoid bad things. And if I can just avoid bad things, then I'm okay. But if I accidentally do bad things, then I'll just have to confess and pay for it later. Church, that is the wrong way to think of sin. Sin is less like being lactose intolerant. Sin is like having cancer. And those who have cancer know that you cannot just do nothing about it. You don't just say, if I avoid this or that, then the cancer will go away. No, you need aggressive treatment, a complete life turnaround. Nothing is ever the same again. It's not a take-it-or-leave-it condition. You declare war on cancer because it is eating away at you. It is your enemy, do you see? Friends, when God looks at sinners, he doesn't see a neutral group of people who have a minor evolutionary health condition whereby the greatest grief is not being able to drink bubble tea. God doesn't even look at us as strangers. People whom he doesn't know, but if he got to know, he would realize that we're actually pretty nice people. As a pure and holy God, he looks at sinners as his enemies. As those who have violated his law and character, as those who are dying a slow death, he could leave us to our own demise and he will be just to do so. I want you right now to think of your greatest enemy. The one who has hurt you, betrayed you, slandered you, stripped you of all your dignity? Friends, sin makes us worse enemies to God than that. And yet he loves us. Do you hear that? This is not a love that is earned. It is not a love that is bought. It is not a love that is exchanged. It is a love that is completely unmerited. It is a gift of grace. He loves us so much that he sends Christ to die for us in order that we can have peace with him. To deal with the inner chaos that is in our lives. So that when he sees us now, he no longer sees us as enemies. 
He sees us as beloved sons and daughters. We are brought into his house. We are safe in his presence. That's the theological reality. And the rubber is about to hit the road now. We've only finished verse 2, right? See, Paul sets this up in the first two verses, and now he shows us how this changes everything, right? Come to point 2 with me, and we're going to begin at verse 3, because here Paul says that since we have been justified, since Christ has paid the price, since we have peace with God, listen very closely, no chaos in this world has to ruin us. No Chaos in this world has to ruin us. You see what verse 3 is saying? We can glory in our sufferings. Another Bible translation says we can rejoice in our afflictions. It means the same thing. You and I can stare suffering, affliction, and trials in the face, and you and I can confidently say, you do not control me. Do you see? The peace that God gives us is not the absence of chaos. Instead, the peace that God gives us is calmness and confidence in the storm. Now, here's the thing. We need to clarify something, okay? This verse does not mean that we no longer feel affliction. It does not mean that we cannot feel grief, sorrow, or pain in the midst of suffering. In fact, the Christian faith actually equips us to deal with suffering in a real way because it doesn't seek to deny it. The Bible never says that suffering or pain is an illusion of the mind. You can think your way out of it. Absolutely not. But it does teach us that our suffering and affliction, the chaos and anxieties of our lives do not have to control us. Why? Because the peace of God grounds us. Because we have this unshakable inner peace that we are right with God. And this changes absolutely everything about the way we see the world. It means that we are so grounded that even though our circumstances may change for the worse, we have a hope that never fails. That's so good. You know why? Because it's so livable. It is a peace that doesn't wait for things to get better. It is a peace that can be experienced even in the midst of the chaos of our day-to-day lives. Paul illustrates this, right? He says, because we have peace with God, even something as tragic as suffering can produce something good. The first of these, look at your Bibles with me, is perseverance. Another word for perseverance is endurance or fortitude. Now, I don't know what you imagine when you think of these words, But in the ancient context, these words were commonly associated with the military. It is often used of a soldier who is in the thick of battle. He's got enemies left, right, and center. He's getting hammered, but then he fights to the very end. Perseverance. According to Paul, this is what suffering produces. A grit, a resilience, a strength that comes from withstanding trials. Because we have inner peace with God, suffering does not destroy us but develops us. Because we have peace with God, suffering does not destroy us but develops us. Another thing it produces is character. Now again, uh, character means a lot of things in our world today, right? What do we mean when we say someone has good character? 
When you say a politician has good character, we mean he or she is, is kind of like a good person. But, but what does it really mean? It's a little bit abstract, right? But when we use that word, there's actually an implicit agreement that a person of character is someone we can rely on, someone we can trust. And according to the Bible, to say that someone has character indicates that they have been tested, that they have endured the test, and they have come out of that test proving themselves to be faithful and strong. That's what character means. And we all know that, right? Character is not developed in a vacuum. No one stumbles into character, right? never happens that way. Character, like diamond, is formed under pressure and heat. I mean, that's the difference between an experienced pilot and an inexperienced pilot, right? If you've flown on a plane, right? There's a difference. An inexperienced pilot may start trembling at turbulence, right? But an experienced pilot sort of feels the movement, looks at the dashboard, assesses the situation, and just calmly navigates through it. It's not because the experienced pilot is naive. No, far from it. It's just that they've been there before. They've survived it. They're wiser. They're stronger. Church, when we have inner peace with God, suffering produces perseverance and endurance. And as we endure, the glitter of a diamond begins to emerge, and that is character. Now here, can we just pause and just agree where this is where some of our older and more mature saints become incredible role models. We often think that the ideal image of a Christian is a young, good-looking guy or gal who is up here leading worship, upstairs teaching Sunday school, back there welcoming, and they're doing all these things all at the same time, right? That's often our image. Or, you know, they're leading a small group, mentoring someone one-on-one, going to faith foundations, going to T3, playing a team sport, and they're doing all these things at the same time, right? Now, I don't want to disregard any of that, Young people, please keep at it. It's a really good thing. But let's also not be so naive to think that this life stage lasts forever. Mature Christianity is not just seen in all of these things. I want to enforce not just because it's helpful. But there are so many other evident ways, right? And one of the ways, as we consider and apply the topic of character, one of the ways maturity is seen is through the quiet faithfulness of our many older saints. Now, I don't want to offend anyone. I'm not saying that they are old. They're just older, okay? It's a relative term, right? Someone's still going to come up to me after and give me a hard time, right? Older, right? Make, make, mature, maybe that's a better word, right? <laughs> but church, our congregation is filled Filled with all of these older and more mature saints who have weathered storms after storms in their lives. Their theology, their prayer life, their devotional life have all been tested by the trials of life. They have emerged faithful. They have proven character. And by God's grace, they have nursed sick spouses. They have prayed for lost children. They have grieved the loss of their own parents. They've struggled through different workplaces. They've wrestled with their own faith. These people are here. They are diamonds by God's grace. Younger folks, apply this, okay? I want you to look to them, and I want you to lean on their wisdom. Do not be content with letting the older folk mingle amongst themselves, right? 
and I want to especially address the men on this, because I feel like women are kind of already showing us how it's meant to be done, right? I was briefly at a quip yesterday, uh, over the 70 women, young and old, sharing and gathering and just doing life together. It's amazing, right? Is it because it comes more naturally to women? Maybe. But men need it too, don't we? Young men, I want you to intrude on the space of the older men after service and ask them to pour their spiritual wisdom upon you. We often admire people's godliness, and that's good. But we must never forget what it took for that godliness and character to form. And the best part is, there are still works in progress. And they'll tell you that, right? Which is why the final stage is hope. And again, I want to pause here, right? Because church, the difference between Christian perseverance and Christian character versus worldly perseverance and worldly character is found here. What we hope for or whether there is any hope at all. Because you see, as I speak of perseverance and character, some of you may think, very honestly, you'll think, I don't have to be a Christian for that. Do you think that? Elliot, that sounds all really good, but but I don't need to be a Christian. And there's a sense in which that's true. I'm sure you know many strong non-Christians of incredible character. The Bible does not diminish any of that at all. At the same time, it also doesn't say that every single Christian will flawlessly be faithful in the perseverance of trials. Many Christians struggle with it. How do we make sense of that? Are you thinking? It's Christian hope. Hope does two things. Hope gives direction and hope gives strength. Firstly, Christian hope gives direction, right? You see, Christian hope is not blind optimism. Instead, it is rooted in the unshakable certainty of Jesus Christ's return. 1 Peter 1 verse 13 says that really clearly. It says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. Jesus is returning, and this is a return which will set all things right once more. It is when the inner peace we experience with God will be the reality of our ordinary experience. When all of our shadow experiences of peace becomes an enduring substance, where our hunger for peace is fully and truly satisfied. Here's the thing, right? A non-Christian can have perseverance and character, but they do not have the same hope. They can wish for things to get better, But without Christ, there is no true or substantial hope that it will. There is no assurance and there is no grounding. Whereas for the Christian, we know that as sure as Christ is raised, all the tragedies and trials of our life will come to an end. There is a direction. And that direction is towards Christ's return. My prayer, brothers and sisters, is that this will be a comfort to you. Because some of you may be stuck in a situation right now where it seems like there is no end. Day after day, where it's the same thing over and over again. You're at the end of your rope and you're wondering if things ever get better. Listen very closely. Here is your hope. It does get better. We are headed towards a destination and Jesus is coming back to make all things right. Christian hope gives us a direction. And because of that, Christian hope gives us strength. 
knowing the end gives us strength to persevere in the present, right? Uh, many of you have had experiences where you're on the verge of breaking down because the suffering you're enduring is too much. Years and years of chronic illness, years and years of lies and distrust, years and years of abuse, years and years of uncertainty. And if you haven't experienced it yet, then you will at some point in your life. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? They say the quality of your theology is tested through trials. How will yours stand? Suffering produces endurance and then character and then lastly hope because suffering will strip us all of human strength and for Christians, the strength that remains is the hope that Christ will return. We don't have to wait for things to get better before we can have peace. We can have it now because of Christ. Are you ready to make it one step more concrete? Come to point three. The fact that God gives us peace in a storm lands in at least three ways. Firstly, it means we can have what the Old Testament calls shalom. It's in your outlines. And many people find it hard to fully define the word, and that's, be that's not because it is impossible to define. It's just that there are so many layers of meanings behind it. It's too rich to be defined in just a few words. But shalom captures the idea of wholeness and fullness. It is best experienced through rest and peace. So returning back to the military image, shalom is not just the absence of enemies. Shalom is the presence of loving relationships as well. Shalom, I contend, is actually what we hunger for in our quest for peace. This rest that has a deep satisfaction, joy, and calmness. Shalom is possible because we are no longer in the presence of our enemy, sin, but instead in the presence of a loving relationship, God. And this shalom gives us comfort in the midst of tragedies. We are comforted because we have no doubt about God's love for us. We know that whatever we are going through is not because God is taking it out on us. It's not because God is lashing out at us. He loved us at our worst and continues to love us still. So we don't have to succumb to superstitious beliefs that thinks, oh, maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I offended the wrong God or something like that. No, we can have shalom because we have peace with God. And that peace can penetrate the way we see and experience the trials in our life. Dear brother or sister, I want you to know today that you are loved by God. Even if you feel like you have been abandoned by people around you, or even if you feel like you've been abandoned by God Himself, God through His Word today is telling you that He loves you. He has not given up on you. He will not let you go. You can persist and endure another day because His love will keep you. If you're struggling to know his love for you, I want to invite you to come up after the service. I want to pray with you and for you because our Heavenly Father is reaching out to you today through his word. Friends, our shalom enables us to have comfort. But second of all, our shalom also gives us courage to make difficult decisions. It probably comes as no surprise to you that one of the main reasons we don't make major decisions in life is because of fear. We're afraid of change. We're afraid of discomfort. We're afraid of instability. 
And now it needs to be made really clear, right, that we need to make wise and biblically informed decisions. But sometimes, and you know this, right, often we know what needs to be done. We don't need more clarity. We need more courage. And having shalom means that we can have the courage to make difficult decisions because we know that nothing can change our inner peace with God. That we have no fear of instability. It doesn't matter if we are faced with a flight of stairs or a smooth surface. Our inner core, inner being remains safe with God. Are you faced with a tough decision about staying or leaving your current workplace? Uh, Maybe leaving is the right decision, but you're worried about how people will see you. Your peace with God will ground you. Maybe staying is the right decision because leaving is the exciting thing to do. Your peace with God will ground you. You see, none of this gives us permission to make careless decisions. But after careful prayer, consideration, and wisdom, this peace enables us to make courageous and difficult decisions. Lastly, our shalom gives us certainty in our identity. You see, friends, the epitome of shalom is to be in God's presence. It is to know God and to be known by God. And church, when we have that, we don't have to go around proving ourselves. You hear that? When we have that, we don't have to go around proving ourselves. Do you realize that the president of the United States doesn't go around telling people who he is? At least not the good ones, right? He doesn't go around with his nuclear codes trying to flex his identity. He doesn't go around saying, do you know who I am? He doesn't do that. Why? Because he knows who he is. And the people around, the ones that matter, knows who he is. He is certain in his identity. He doesn't have to prove anything. Oh, church, if we could have the same certainty of our identity... Because you see, so much of our anxiety and our worry comes from wanting to make a point. To prove something to the people around us. To show that we are significant or important. We get so scared when people don't think that of us. We want to show them that we're worth it. But church, having God's shalom means that we are known and approved by the one whose approval truly matters. He's made us right with him through Christ. This means, you know what? We can be a non-anxious presence to people around us. We don't have to have this franticness to us. Even when our world is spiraling out of control, God gives us peace in the storm. The great evangelist D.L. Moody once said this. It's in your outlines. A great many people are trying to make peace, but that has already been done. God has not left it for us to do. All we have to do is enter into it. So friends, I want to invite all of us to enter into this today. If you're not a Christian, the first step today is to say to God, God, I want, I need that inner peace that is found through Jesus Christ. I recognize that I've been unwise in trying to attain this peace on my own. I need to be forgiven of my sins. I need to be reconciled to you. I want this peace. You can do that today. If you are a Christian, then I want to tell you this is an ongoing journey. Yeah, We have inner peace with God through Christ, but we need to keep embracing this peace as an everyday lived experience. Because here's the thing. 
The chaos and storms often cause us to forget the peace we have. It makes us feel that our worlds are crumbling apart. We need some tools that will help us in stormy seasons. So three quick things as I wrap it up here. Number one, to greet. Number two, to gather. Number three, to gaze. Greet, gather, and gaze. Firstly, to greet. Now, this is very interesting, right? Because how we greet one another in our day-to-day life often shows what we value. Have you realized that? You're not Australian, so how do we greet each other? Oh, yeah, good day. How are you going, right? Yeah, right? It doesn't say that much, right? <laughs> but, but how do Chinese people greet one another? We don't just say hello. We ask, have you eaten? Interesting, isn't it? That's also overweight, right? No, it's because there have been multiple generations of Chinese people who have survived famines. And they know that a full stomach cannot be assumed. So we ask. And if they haven't eaten... We offer to feed them. It's the same with Japanese culture, right? They don't just say, it's nice to meet you. They say, please treat me well. I'm not going to say it in Japanese. I'm going to butcher it, right? Why? Because there is a social hierarchy that is built deep within Japanese society. We all know that Japanese people bow, right? That's a very common way to greet one another. But did you know that the degree of your bow depends on the respect you're meant to give to the other person. If they have higher status, you bow lower. So seriously, there's a 15 degree, there's a 30 degree, there's a 90 degree. And seriously, right, if they are of such magnificent stature, you prostrate on the floor. It's deep within their culture. That's why in their greeting, they say, please treat me well. It shows that they take their social hierarchy seriously. How we greet shows what we value. Church, Is there any way that we can integrate this peace that we have with God into our greetings and greet each other in such a way that helps one another remember and call to mind the peace we have through Christ? So instead of implying that a filled stomach is the most important thing or social hierarchy is the most important thing, is there a way that we as Christians can emphasize that peace with God is what we need through the storms of life? If you ever get a chance to walk around Israel, I want you to observe how people greet one another. They say, Shalom. Peace be with you. But of course, that's biblical, isn't it? Are you ready? Romans 1 verse 7, 1 Corinthians 1 3, 2 Corinthians 1 2, Galatians 1 3, Ephesians 1 2, Philippians 1 2. I could keep going. All of these verses record Paul greeting the churches. And you know what he says? Grace and peace. From God, our Father, through Jesus Christ. Peace, that's part of the greeting. So this is where I'm going to need your help and creativity, right? Because I don't know how to do it. I don't know a good greeting for our context where we can remind one another of our peace in Christ. We could say shalom, but then we have to explain it. That's another step, right? We could say grace and peace to you. That could work, but it sounds a bit like Star Warsy. I'm not too sure, right? So how can we greet one another with God's peace in a way that is not awkward, not tacky, but also clear and warm and accessible? Class, that's homework for all of us, okay? This is the theological reality. There is biblical precedent. How do we do it well? Talk about it over morning tea. Try a few things. If you figure out a good one, let me know. Winner gets a prize, okay? So the first is to greet. Second, to gather. And by gather, I mean gathering more examples from Scripture. 
Because here's the thing, the way to overcome a storm is not to pretend the storm doesn't exist. Instead, it is to anchor in something far stronger, far deeper, far greater than the storm. So that we will not be uprooted or thrown around. Church, that which is stronger, deeper, and greater is God as he is revealed in his word. And so maybe a really good idea today will be to go away and go through all the gospel writings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and highlight every saying, every parable, every story that shows that God gives us peace in the storm. And then do the same with the New Testament letters. Do the same with the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. Do the same with the Psalms. Do the same with the entire Bible. And once you've highlighted those, you could write them on a sticky note and then post it all around your home, your car, your notebooks. Set it as a screensaver on your phone. Gather all of this information and start memorizing these stories and verses to seal into your heart the unchangeable reality that God gives us peace in the storm. We gather, we memorize so that they're instantly accessible to us in times of need. Lastly, we greet, we gather in order to gaze. By gaze, I mean we learn to gaze through the storm. You see, the acts of greeting and gathering are liturgical activities that give us a new posture. And it's a posture that isn't isn't easily swept by the storm. It is a posture that learns not just to look at our current circumstances, but to look through the storm and see God's grace on the other side. Through this, we learn that our identity and eternity is secured. That's what gives us comfort in the midst of tragedies, courage to make tough decisions, and certainty our identity. Church, let's go and greet, gather, and gaze, and we can even have a bit of fun while doing it. By God's grace, we can. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word to us and the peace that you promise in the gospel. And we ask still that you will continue to seal this truth deep into our hearts and allow it to emerge with a deep sense of joy that is found in Christ. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.